What's up, guys, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Binge Mode made its grand return earlier this month, and Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion are deep diving on the Star Wars franchise, covering every movie, the newly released Disney Plus series, The Mandalorian, and fan favorite characters. You can check out new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And up on the site, we have more Mandalorian coverage written by Micah Peters, Allison Herman, and Ben Lindbergh, as well as staff-wide surveys throughout the season. You can check it all out on TheRinger.com. Welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. You are listening to Black on the Air. Thank you very much for listening in, you guys. A lot going on in the world. Can't cover it all. Trying to talk a little bit about it. You know, got the impeachment thing uh, going on, and that changes every day. I don't know how I feel about that. I watch it and I go, oh. you know, <laughs> like, this is just so, like, uh, I don't even have a word. Wow, that's crazy. You know what it is? Here's the word. It's exhausting. I watch it and I'm exhausted. As soon as I turn it on, I want to go to sleep. It's just completely exhausting. And they're not, I feel like they're not telling us things that we don't already know. Like, you know, many of you listening probably too young to remember Watergate. And I was young at the time. So it didn't really, you know, I didn't really know what was going on, you know, as a kid. I just knew that the president did something wrong and they were talking about it was kind of how it hit me. I always like to feel it. How do these things just hit laymen, people that aren't following it closely? But the thing about that that I do remember is that it was surprising to people to hear that the president did illegal things. Like, even though, I mean, people aren't naive. They know that politicians are crooked and everything. But when they actually heard about it, you know, when it becomes real that the president you know, and because they had the smoking gun in that case, remember they had President Nixon on tape, a tape he should have destroyed, you know, talking about, you know, doing these nefarious things. So it wasn't just people in, you know, accusing him of something. He was actually on tape and talking about doing something illegal, which is obstruction of justice, you know, you know, and all the uh, the dirty money and all that stuff that was going on back then, which is what Watergate was all about. You know, it was this burglary and there was a cover-up and all that kind of stuff. And the fact that Nixon implicated himself in connection to that was a direct, almost admission that he did something wrong. Here, we don't have that same kind of thing. Like, here, we already know Trump is corrupt. We knew that before he ran. So that's not a shock to us. So these things don't hit our ears as a shock. Like, what? Trump might have done something wrong? Like, <laughs> like you were in Scooby-Doo. Wrong? 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 Like, nobody has that Scooby-Doo moment, right? So there's nothing shocking about it, you know, and it's almost an impeachment inquiry about language. Like, was his language improper? You know, we know his intentions, I'm sure, are crooked, you know, because, like I said, we know Trump is crooked. But we're really talking about, like, in other words, they're not trying to prove Trump is crooked to people. That's not what they're trying to prove in my mind. They have to prove that the language he used was improper, that his intention was improper. because. The results of it, you know, have turned out to not be that big of a deal. If we didn't know about this phone call, it probably would have just blown over because, it, you know, they never announced this investigation or whatever. You know, the thing that he was trying to get, I think, didn't happen. I guess the fair way to say it. So we're talking about language, you know, and we're talking about intent and we're talking about a lot of these things. But there's no, like, obvious smoking gun, it appears to me, where there's a clear implication of something constitutionally or legally wrong that the president can be accused of 
that is the reason for impeachment. As opposed to, we all know, this is the other thing. Like, Richard Nixon, here's another example. Richard Nixon as a president was very fit. He actually was a very capable president. You know, there were there wasn't an issue. I mean, people disagreed with some of his things, you know, the bombing of Cambodia and some of that stuff. But he actually started affirmative action, opened the door to China. I mean, there was a lot of things that Richard Nixon did as a diplomat. If you took Watergate out of it and his personality, <laughs> you know, people thought of him as a very capable president. And I'm not talking about whether you are Democrat or Republican or agree or disagree. I'm just talking about his actual capability. But Trump, from the people who actually work with Trump, I'm not talking about the people who are against Trump. The people who actually have worked with him, the Tillerson, some of these people, have felt that he is unfit and a danger to the country. That is the difference. Like, I wish he could be impeached for that. I wish we could get Tillerson on the stand and say, look, this motherfucker just shouldn't be president. I'm like, yes, please, tell us why. (laughs) Give us your reasons. (laughs) You know, that's why he should be impeached. But this... um, Going over the language of this phone call and this, you know, may have to go to some arcane rules about things. To me, I just don't think it's going to come out to anything. But there are plenty of people who actually have worked with the president who will say that he is unfit to hold that office and is a danger to the country and the world. So I wish it was about that. I really do. I wish the impeachment hearings was more like a talk show where we had a good host who could just interview people like a host and get these, like if Wendy Williams was doing the impeachment trial and could just get Tillerson and some of these people to spill the tea. <laughs> just spill the tea about the president and just tell us, tell us what's going on. We just want to know. We need a TMZ investigation. So anyhow, that's how I feel about that. We'll see what's going to happen. I think it, most people are going to be put to sleep by it. That's my opinion. And, um, oh, before I keep going, uh, Malcolm Nance, I have on the show today, guys. Really good conversation. We were both on Bill Marshall a couple of years ago when Milo Yiannopoulos kind of got a smackdown, I think by both of us, although Malcolm insisted I was doing it. But we talked a couple of days ago. He's, he's amazing. His book, The Plot to Betray America, is a great book, and it's about Trump and all these, all these issues. He goes into detail in that book, some amazing detail. And he re- I just feel that Trump is unfit. But, I mean, he keeps it 1,000% real on some of these things, so... It's not only a great conversation. We, we go into a lot of things about cryptology and the world and all kinds of stuff. So great talking to him. And he goes into detail, of course, in the book, which you should read about how dangerous Trump is. Speaking of being put to sleep, we had the debate last night. The, the Democratic uh, debate. And it's so boring to me. I, it was so hard to stay awake. I kept dozing off. Buster, you guys know my dog. He's got like that kennel cough right now, so he's been a little sick. So he's like been low key. So he's just we're we're both dozing off at exactly the same time. Like <laughs> trying to watch the debates. It was so funny. And then I wake up and then Buster looks at me and I go, Whoa, did we fall asleep? And he goes, Yes, yeah, so Biden's talking. Oh, sorry, you're right. It's time to go to sleep again. You know. I said last time there are some people who need to get out of the race. They don't have a chance. It would make these debates more interesting if it was just four or five people. It's just too many. And these people still, some of these people still need to get, like, Tulsi Gabbard, you're not going to win the Democratic nominee for the presidency. And it makes me think, how can I trust your judgment as president if you can't even see that you have no chance to be president? Like, how can I even trust your judgment? I know that's a circular argument, but 
Like, my opinion of your judgment keeps falling the longer you stay in the race. <laughs> it's like, you have no judgment if you think you have a chance. Why should I trust your judgment as president? You're disproving it by, you're disproving your fitness for the presidency by running for the presidency. That's how you're disproving it. Because it shows me you have no judgment, you know. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of things, you know, there's some things that happen. Some people said who won or blah, blah, blah. But I have a very simple takeaway from last night. If you guys watched it, and if you haven't, I'm sure you can see it on YouTube. If you if you have trouble going to sleep, I would suggest watching it. But guys, Biden is a problem. He is a problem. I mean, he's a front runner with a huge problem. I don't think I've ever seen this issue where the front runner is a problem like this. I mean, I'm sure the Republicans had it. I guess with Trump, when Trump became front runner, I'm, there were a lot of Republicans that felt this way, but for different reasons, you know. But Trump ended up winning, and for some of those people, he remained a problem, the never-Trumpers, right? But in a different way. But I feel Biden is a problem for opposite reasons. I I, I don't even know if—like, I don't don't know who's going to be excited about Biden. Biden seems to not even be excited about himself. It seems like his own body is fighting this and trying to put him to sleep during the debate. Like, he's trying—his body's trying to—it's just trying to fight to stay awake and stay alert, I mean, he makes these gaffes, guys, that I don't even know if they're gaffes. You know, let's talk about what a gaffe is. A gaffe, normally, from a political standpoint, is when a politician accidentally tells the truth. That's what a gaffe actually is. When a politician accidentally tells the truth and they're not being political in their statement, you know. Because, as I've said before, most people don't say what they mean, but they mean what they say. Your politicians, lawyers and stuff, say what they mean but they don't mean what they say, meaning their words are always more important than their meanings. And the people who keep it 100 actually say what they mean and they mean what they say. Their words are exactly as important as the meaning behind those words, you know. I don't know what it is with Biden. Like a gaffe, when people make a gaffe, you know, they actually say what they mean and mean what they say. <laughs> you know, it actually, the truth slips through. But Biden's gaffes are different. I don't know what the fuck is going on. Like when he did that whole record player thing, like it's, he takes this journey, like an acid journey or something in some faraway land, you know? And then he comes back and says, Oh, I didn't mean that motherfucker. Where did you just go? You just left us. Where did you go when you were saying that stuff? You you weren't going to truth land. You were going to a different land. That's what's worrying people. When he makes these gaps, he goes to these different lands. We don't know where he's going because it's not even the land of the past. It's, it's some Biden land of, you know, <laughs> where Biden gaffes exist, you know, where things, you know, I don't know, are made up or whatever. One of the biggest ones he said last night where he said that he had the backing of the uh, only African-American woman senator, who I know is Carol Mosley Brown, but most people don't even care about that at this point. And standing right next to him is another African-American senator, you know, Kamala Harris, right there. And it was such a moment where the audience was like, motherfucker, what? What are you even talking about? Who are you? It was one of those gaps that was so bad. I think it almost looked like people felt sorry for him. You know, it was so bizarre. Let's play that right now so we could hear it. 
Notice I have more people supporting me in the black community that announced for me because they know me. They know who I am. Three former chairs of the Black Caucus, the only African-American woman that ever been elected to the United States Senate. A whole range of people. No, My point no, is true. The other one is true. Here. <laughs> See, that's what I mean. Listen to that. I mean, it's, guys, it's, it's a pathetic type of, of funny that this is. It's not a good kind of funny, you know. The other embarrassing thing that Biden did was when he was talking about violence against women. And what's sad about it is his answer started out very decent. And then it ended horribly. Let's play that clip so I can talk about it. No man has a right to raise a hand to a woman in anger other than in self-defense, and that rarely ever occurs. And so we have to just change the culture, period, and keep punching at it and punching at it and punching at it. It will be a big... Pr- no, I really mean it. It, it, make, it. It's a gigantic issue, and we have to make it clear from the top, from the president on down, that we will not tolerate it. We will not tolerate. Are you serious? Punching? Punching? His. Ah! And the audience is laughing here and he doesn't get it. He does. He doesn't know. He doesn't even know why they're laughing. This is what I mean, where he he goes off to some place. And I don't know what this place is. This is what I mean by this isn't a gaffe. He's not telling the truth. He's going to a weird Biden land. We have to punch this problem. Does he understand he just talked about violence against women and he's using an allusion to punching? This is like if you said, what do we got? How do we got to get rid of racism? Well, racism is this horrible problem, Larry, in this country. We've got to take racism and we've got to lynch it and we've got to lynch it and we've got to lynch it and we've got to lynch it. That's what we've got to do with racism. Mother, what do you mean we got to lynch it? What are you talking about? What's wrong with you? Oh, it's just, it's crazy to me, you know. And then when he gets slammed by Booker, Cory Booker said, nigga, I thought you were high. I added the nigga. That was me. He didn't say nigga. But he's like, nigga, I thought you were high when you were talking about marijuana. (laughs) And it was almost like a deer in the headlights. And when you get taken down by Cory Booker like that, that's just sad. It really is sad. And I like Cory Booker a lot, you know. In that first debate, like Kamala Harris actually went after Biden in a way that you normally do in a debate. She attacked him, all that kind of stuff because he was a front runner. But this was pathetic. This was Biden taking himself down. This was a whole different thing, you guys. And it just made me think, I don't know. I mean, I said people like Tulsi Gabbard should get out of the race. You know, Tom Tom Steyer, is that his name? Whatever it is. He needs, I can't even remember his name. He needs to get out. Some of these other people who did get out need to get out if they haven't. You know, it needs to thin out more. But I'm starting to think, Biden may have to get out of this race, you guys. This motherfucker may have to get out. I mean, I don't know who's going to be excited about this. And look, there are some moderate voices in there who I think are really good that people might be able to get behind if Biden weren't there. I don't know if they get the nomination, but I like Amy Klobuchar. You know, she's got some issues going on with shaking that people were talking about. I don't know if it's nerves or if there's something going on. I don't want to assume that there is. Like, she doesn't have the ease that a Kamala Harris has. Like, when Kamala Harris... And Elizabeth Warren are speaking. They seem at ease, you know, they're natural, you know, speakers, whether through having done it a while or whatever, you know, in different ways. But she always seems a bit, you know, I don't know what it is. Like when there's a big moment 
to say something, her words are always good. You know, when she said she got donations from her ex-boyfriend, it's a very funny line. But when she says a line like that, a line like that should endear us to her. We should be endeared to her for a line like that. But she says it and it just gets lost immediately because there's a little tension. You know, it's when a stand-up comic who has good jokes but they're they're not polished yet. The audience, they can't really laugh at the joke because they're not comfortable with the comic. That's how I feel about Klobuchar. I don't think, like, Klobuchar is very competent. She's very accomplished. She's done a lot of the things. Like, when I look at Buttigieg, and she tried to get this across. Here, here's a classic example. Buttigieg is like what I call white boy promise, right? Like, white boys can promise all these things, and they don't have to do shit, but people can vote for them because white boy promise, you know, they feel like they can get everything. What women have actually done, they have a bigger hill to climb than what white boys will promise. And this is white women, women of color, doesn't matter. But women can actually be completely accomplished and have done this shit that the white boy is just promising to do, but people don't care. You know, it's just going to go by. Sorry, woman. You got you. You got to do more. Sorry, not enough. And I think that's where Amy Klobuchar is. She's done way more things than Budacek has done, and the things that he's promising, the bills that she's not only passed but she sponsored, the type of leadership she's shown, just her knowledge on you know Senate, uh, the Foreign Affairs Committee, those type of things. You know, at the highest levels in government and the people she's worked with, she's very accomplished. She has some very sensible ideas. Her moderate stance isn't one that people really like in the primaries. I will grant you that. You know, so that isn't going to cut through in the way that Elizabeth Warren, who's coming from the left, is striking fire. But she's certainly competent enough and accomplished enough to be taken more seriously. But I think she gets in the way of that. There's something personal that's not connecting. And I don't know if it's that kind of polish. And the fact that Buttigieg, who really hasn't done shit, this motherfucker hasn't done shit, you guys. He really hasn't. But he's very intelligent. You know, he's he's likable. He's He has a good story about coming out and all that stuff. But I like how Cory Booker kind of kind of side-slammed him. He's like, um, I, keep, I keep putting the N-word in his mouth. I can't help it. But Cory Booker's like, nigga, I'm a Rhodes Scholar too and the next mayor. There's two of us up here. <laughs> I wish I wish the debate could have happened like that. I wish they could have said these things. If Cory Booker could have said, motherfucker, I'm a Rhodes Scholar too. You know that, right? You know, and by the way, I was not only mayor, I am now a senator. Now what you got? Come back at me. Yeah. But anyhow, that's where I'm feeling right now. It could be that Biden, as the lead moderate candidate, could be suffocating moderate candidates who are actually pretty decent, who might be good leaders. And that's Cory Booker. Cory Booker is a moderate candidate. You know, his his big deal is um, criminal justice, but he is like the person who talks about bipartisanship and all these things. People don't want to hear that stuff in the primary, of course. I think Cory would be a good leader. I just think people aren't ready to listen to his happy message right now. That's my only, That really is my only criticism of him. When I say Cory's full of shit, I mean it in a nice way. As opposed to when I talk about Kamala Harris, who I believe is full of shit because she doesn't really tell us what she believes, I think. When she does, I think she's more powerful. So we'll see what's going to happen. I'm very disappointed at this point. I'm very concerned with Biden as a front runner, but we'll see. I could be wrong. I don't know. I don't know. All right. Malcolm Nance is coming up. Hope you guys enjoy it.
All right, welcome back. I got my boy on the show today, man. We were linked together on Filmar a couple of years. That was a couple of years ago. Yeah. It's now in infamy. It lives in infamy. The Milo Show. He's a counterterrorism analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. Uh, you see him talking all the time. He's just great. And he has a new book out, The Plot to Betray America. He's the New York Times bestselling author, and this is fated to be another one. Malcolm Nance. Malcolm, welcome to Black on the Air. I'm so happy Thanks to be here. Thanks for being here, man. This is <laughs> so, going to be fun. Yeah, we were just talking a little bit about that Bill Maher appearance for some of you that, I, mean, I guess a lot of people know, it was kind of weird what happened. So Milo Yiannopoulos, that's how you pronounce his name, I guess. Bill Maher had him. And Bill was already starting to get some flack. For just booking him. Yes, exactly. Because he was starting to do that type of thing. And I get it. You know, he wants to bring that side on because it's kind of a movement out there and he wants to acknowledge that movement. I get it, you know. But, oh, man, a lot of people are against it. I think I was going on the show and somebody else had decided not to come on. I can't remember yeah, who it was. Yeah, it was Jeremy Scahill Jeremy from Scahill. Intercept decided not yes. to come on. And, in fact, I was slotted to come on like a week later oh, as the main guest right. for my book, uh, The Plot to Hack America. The Plot to Hack America, which, came which out is the six preface weeks before to The Plot the ele- to Betray America. Yeah, well, it came out six <laughs> weeks before the election. Plot yeah. to Hack America. Oh, so, okay. uh, and I had predicted everything that's happened for the last few years. And you actually recover, you cover some of that again here. Yes. And there's uh, actually an intermediate book, yes. Plot to Destroy Democracy. Exactly. Right, right, so right, right. those three books, all two books culminate to this book, Plot to right. Betray America, which is strictly about Team Trump. But yeah, that show yeah. was weird. It was bizarre. Right? <laughs> oh, well, first off, let me tell it yes. from my perspective. Let's hear this first before we, we get into your, your perspective. <laughs> and so we get to the show, and um, it was my first time as a as a panelist. Really? Yeah. I thought you'd been on many times. No, yeah. no, no. They had bought me on, they had tested me oh, one okay. time before. Oh, right, 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 right. And then they, see how they you'll bought do. me as a panelist. Right. And then, so Larry, we all have our three little dressing rooms up top, yes. right? Right, right. And so... Larry's in number one because he's this big boss. Oh, that's hilarious. Right? And then number, number two is Jack Kingston. And number uh-huh. three was me back in the kids' table. And So funny. You know, and you were there with your little posse. And, yeah, it was uh, probably Brandy who's here right now. <laughs> Brandy, you were there. Were you there? Were that you night? there? Oh, you were at the No, you were no, there. no. Who's oh, your, yeah, yeah. Your, your co-host at from? The, no one. At the most, it's usually only Brandy. Really? If someone else was there, it's just by no, accident. The, yeah. the, the, the Latina woman from Nightly Show. That. Oh, but Grace is a friend of mine, Grace yes. Para. Yeah, Grace Para. Oh my posse. god! No, if yeah. she's not if she's not your posse, you need no. to upgrade your posse because she is the funniest. Oh, Grace person is fantastic in real life. Grace is fantastic that I've ever seen. No, low key, she is literally her herself. People don't know about Grace yet, but they will because she's still on her way. Some people know about, but Grace is fantastic. She's she hilarious. needs. She some. just came to support her brother. She. Oh well, that was <laughs> funny. So <laughs> you were actually sort of in there getting your game face on. Oh, that's hilarious! I, I had love said all hello this through preamble. the door, and you didn't say a word to me. Oh, that's hilarious! And I was like. Uh, That's not true. What level of obscenities were we allowed to use on this? You podcast? say whatever you want. Back I said, on the air. So I was like, "Yeah, Larry Gilmore does. Larry Gilmore does." Oh, now I'm Gilmore. Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, you're part of the Gilmore <laughs> Girls. But I said, "Yeah, Larry Gilmore doesn't strike me as a dick." You, you can use but... the N- you can use the N word if you what? like. <laughs> <laughs> he must be in a new world. What does this nigga think he's doing? So he's no, 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 here. no. You were way above the N word, right? So I said, "Okay, well, he's maybe he's just getting his game on." Yes. Right? Then let me just. Say just so you know, whenever I do those shows, I over prepare for that stuff. So, oh. so right, and to me, it's like 
in my stand-up days, I'm very serious before I go on stage and do comedy. You were focused. And, yeah, because to me, I'm trying to get us prepared. And what it is, it's it's a show like that. For me, it's both information and jokes. Yeah. So I have to have both. I have to know exactly what the thing is. And because I'm also, I have another life and I'm doing stuff, there's some things I'm not that well up on. Right. You know, just like, you know, when you're involved in other things and you do a show like that, you go, oh, shit, what are they covering? All right. Well, I know this thing, but I don't know too much about this. So you're, you know, you're shoring up all of maybe the stuff that you don't know that much right. about. But also for me, I'm like, what's my point of view on this? You know, and that's what I'm doing right before the show. I don't and, know. And making sure I have something funny. I don't know because, you know, <laughs> I've done a lot of that's this stuff in counterterrorism yeah. and— the You're view, just an expert. You don't view, have to prepare. You view, live this stuff all the time. I'm a comedy writer. <laughs> so the view I, I had of you in I'm that, not as smart as you. The view I had of you in there was actually <laughs> of an assassin, like, loading and unloading his weapon. Yeah, that's kind of That's the it. impression that's that I had. It. I was like, someone's going to get murdered. Yeah. So that's that's actually go, pretty accurate there. We that's go exactly, down on stage. That's hilarious. And it's me. So oh, I, it would later come to fruition. Right. It was me in the first chair, you in the middle, and right. Jack Kingston on the end. Yes. And when you're on Bill Maher's panel, you don't hear what's actually being said yeah, it's with the hard interview. To hear. Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to hear. It's because you're not mic'd. And, yeah. you know, the audio's not up. Yeah. They're talking. So right. I had no, Okay, first off. And you're trying to focus on, okay, what am I going to do yeah. here? Blah, well, blah, blah. true confession, you know, I'm a little, I'm like you. I'm busy. I have a life. Sure. I'm too busy doing, Absolutely. you know, counterterrorism stuff. I did not know. I did not know. Yeah, like you're busy doing your little <laughs> comedy right now. I'm kind of busy doing counterterrorism. Yeah, I'm, like, I'm out trying to save the world. Counting you're, bullets. You're trying to save your job. Yeah. So I didn't <laughs> really know who Milo was. Right. I knew who he was. Yeah. And later on, some, as Bill said, he said it became very clear. You not only did not know who he was, yeah. you did not give a fuck who he was. Correct. And I <laughs> and I was on the other side of that. I was perfectly prepared for who he was. You but came, we both had both flanks. You came loaded for bear. No, but so did you. You had no, the, the Leslie Jones did you controversy. Have the Gerbos comment. That was not that show, was it? Okay. Or, I think it was the next. Was it? I thought it was. That no, it was show. that show. Yeah, it was that, that was show. Like, I, I didn't know. Like, no, no, no. That was off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah, but you. Okay, came let's out get firing. back to the, to the theme, and I'll explain okay. the baby Gerbos comment. All right. So baby Gerbos. He started with you over the the Leslie Jones controversy. Well, he started before he got to us because he yeah. said it to Bill Maher, yeah. and he was saying it online. And I didn't like that from the beginning. Before that was me already knowing that that motherfucker had come out just blasting for no reason Leslie Jones and was talking about her looks and her intelligence and all that stuff. And I'm like, hold on, motherfucker, that's beyond the pale. It's yeah. one thing to say I don't think somebody's funny. But you're gonna go after this woman on that on those terms? Come yeah. on, man. That's not that's not even that's beyond the shit of to be who you say you are and the kind of bomb thrower, mm -hmm. that's not the kind of bombs you need to be throwing. Right. Yeah, I mean, what are you what are you doing? Well, I I recall because right. I had only heard about it incidentally. Right. You know, because I was too busy tracking Russian stuff. And when you started <laughs> talking, it started the details of it started floating to the surface. Yes. All yeah. right. Now, you were loaded, man. And you That's were so getting into him. So at one point, you started pushing your chair back, which are controlled by those little strips of wood. Wow, you have, you and if you push back far enough, no you were you're going over the side. Right. Right? And you pushed back, and then your hands were up on the table like you were going to push up and come <laughs> over the table at him. And I, look. I, I was ready. Like, if I... <laughs> 
No, you look like hood. you were coming it's over the table. It's when you take off your earrings. You take you know, off your earrings. No, no, this was not. This was that part where the person starts to move slightly his shoulder away from you, uh-huh. and you know a sucker punch right. is about to come. Yeah. Right, that last subtle movement. Right. And I got so concerned. And I don't know if you remember. I put my left hand on your forearm. That's so funny. And I went, simmer down, slick. <laughs> I said That's it quietly, so but you were into him, man. Yeah. You were ripping him right. apart. Variety yeah. the next day wrote a whole article about right. this. Well, <laughs> no? I, you know what? It's so funny. My memory of that moment when I told him to go fuck himself, basically. Was <laughs> no, <because> literally. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, here's the thing. But it was, it was, we were past the Leslie Jones thing. Then he started insulting us directly, yeah. you know, which was ridiculous, you know. And I stood up for you more than even me. Yeah. I'm like, you know, I'm a comedian. I don't care. Whatever. I get this. You and Bill. Yeah. Yeah, But I said, this is a counterterrorism expert. This man knows more about this shit than you know, you know, this Uh stuff we're talking about. You know, how dare you insult his intelligence? His intelligence. He said, I said, that's the last thing. That should be your last critique of this gentleman right here. I said, I'm a comedian. Fine. Make that assault on me. (laughs) (laughs) We're good for it. Yeah. So I was even throwing you across that line. Well, that was his thing. He goes, Bill, I don't know why you have such stupid people on your show. And that's when I came back. I really did not understand that he, well, first off, full disclosure, I did not know Milo Yiannopoulos was gay. Right. And I didn't know that he was, his character that he's playing, wearing literally his grandmother's pearls, Mm -hmm. all the double wrapped around his neck and clutching them. And so I made this subtle insult. Oh, man. I got to have Malcolm on every week, you guys. I I made this subtle (laughs) insult to him where I said, so you're the face, new face of the alt-right. Yes, the right. You're the new face of conservatism. Right. That's interesting because I've been to Naples and Port Said. It looks like you've been there too. Now, Naples is like the bastion in Europe of of transgendered people. Sure. And uh, so is Port Said. And he got it. He got that Mm -hmm. joke. He was just like, oh, you, you're just so stupid. And while I'm sitting there going, how is this cartoon character yeah. possible? And, you know, you had right. hit him. You had already hit him with the big F you. Well, right? and, and that's when we came back and he was, you know, he had said something vapid to me. And I said the same. Fuck well, off. Well, the you go fuck yourself, though, was it was more than just a defense of us, too. For me, I, the thing I remember most about that, because I don't remember a lot of the actual words, was I thought, how dare this guy? Here's a gay man who has a platform. And he's going to use that platform to undermine the current journey of transgender people. Right. I'm like, don't you understand what shoulders you're standing on? Right. (laughs) You know, and what shoulders need to be stood on from here. I said, how dare you use your platform as a gay man? And I know, you know, if I'm not saying if you're gay, you have to support something. I'm not making that generalization. But if you're in that arena and you are undermining someone's plight that is similar to the plight that you had to go through, too. Why are you taking that position? Why would you even do that? That's the thing I couldn't and understand. I, and also ridiculing it. It I was mean, ridiculous. As well. And didn't you know, have a point of view about it. His whole thing yeah. about, oh, I'm a gay man. All of my lovers are black. That means I cannot right. be a racist. That means sure. that I cannot be so anti-gay. Sure that means that I cannot be. Yeah, yeah. you're in here. Mo- I almost right. got the impression he was mocking But this is what I said, I am light-skinned. 
not through <laughs> not, not, not through not choice, through consent. right? <laughs> <laughs> the cream was poured in the coffee, not the other way around. <laughs> Many years ago. <laughs> yeah, it just rose to the surface in your yes, generation. It was not a so, party that did it. <laughs> no, you know. So so Milo was a, was an offensive character, and we we right. cut him down, and that's when, and then when, it, when the internet went wild. And then I was just like, "Hey, wait a minute! Are you an American citizen?" I thought he was like, you no. know, one of those British guys who came over here and converted citizen. No. And he's like, "No!" And no. It, it was. I thought, yeah. "Why are we listening to you? Right? You don't count for nothing. Go to him and talk about Brexit. Yeah, you know." And so that's when he got the double fuck off. Right. From everybody, right, right, right. and um, and he couldn't have been nicer to me backstage. After no, too. then no. he then he wanted to be my buddy. Oh yeah, they take pictures <laughs> with everybody. So quick aside, the baby, the Goebbels joke. Oh yeah, Bill had done Fantastic. the. Bill was doing his new rules, and he had showed a picture of Stephen Miller, yes. uh, White House as- assistant, and Goebbels, yes, side by side, and he goes, "Well, there's someone who he does resemble." You know, Goebbels. Sure. And in the military, you pop off with jokes right. that I, I do not play L- pre Lots of jokes. gallows humor in the military. Oh, yes. Very yeah. gallowy. Uh-huh. But in this one, it just popped into my head. And I went, baby Goebbels. <laughs> Bill freaking died. No, and not great. only would he, he's just head down laughing. And I was told, do not make jokes on this show. And I Really? Yeah. Because I'm not a comedian and I'm oh. the serious political analyst. But, oh, okay. you know, now you got me like, this show is like being on a ship. Right. Okay. All I'm going to do is make jokes. And our little secret rooms with no windows and the cipher lock on the door right. and the safe houses, it's just nothing but dirty <laughs> jokes all day. You know, usually about, you know, the efficacy of drones on camels and yes. so, you know, things like that. So, Malcolm, after all this happens, what happens to you? Do you Because you kind of become... The opinion towards you kind of become a little more not mythic, but now it's like <laughs> no, you no, get no, to no. put in a different category of oh man. No, the next day because you, know, you, you got a lot of love on Twitter after that. And yeah, well, that's right? true yeah. because you know I didn't. What, but people were saying it's very clear you didn't know who he was and you did not care right. who he was, and that cut him more than sure. anything because he's a he's an attention hound, right. right? He's a he's a he's a drama whore. And he just was there. He wants to be seen. And, you know, I've had 19-year-old sailors like that in the military. Uh And you have to recalibrate them the Uh hard way, right? Like, okay, you you want a lot of attention. (laughs) Yeah, here is a, you know, here is a wire metal scraper. Go out and scrape down 500 square, you know, square feet of steel paint and get all the paint off of it. Then prime it. Give them something horrible to do. Okay. You know, and that's how you get, that's how you recalibrate. So here's what I like to do. Before I jump, we jump into the book. I want to ask you about your background specifically. I want the audience to get to know you a little bit. So how did you get started in your area of expertise, let's just say? What what was your journey? Well, first, I I grew up a— yeah, I grew up a poet, young. I grew up, young, sh- I grew up in, <laughs> no, in Philadelphia, <laughs> right, of Philly. all places. I, mm-hmm. I'm from a Navy family. My family has mm-hmm. served in every war since 1864. Wow. My poor sharecropper sons ran off from slavery in northern Alabama really? and uh, joined the U.S. Colored Troops, 111th U.S. Colored Troops, and got to shoot their slave owners at their slave owners. So it was wow. awesome. Uh, and they loved it so much. My great-great-granduncle uh-huh. actually stayed in the military, went to the Indian Wars, and he was in Lima mm-hmm. Troop 9th Cavalry, the Buffalo Soldiers. Oh, the Buffalo Soldiers. And yeah. died There's there. another story that needs to be told. Yeah. Probably, yeah. 
And he he died there uh, mm. post patrol. He got he fell. He got an infection, an inner ear infection, and yeah. he died. And he's buried there in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Wow. You know uh, William Nance. So if you're at Fort Leavenworth Cemetery, go find him. So we've had a Nance in every war since 1864. World War One. My grandfather and the Nance name goes back clean like that too. That's yeah, interesting. Clean, all yeah. the way in, back. in our you know. With black people, with us, sometimes that name doesn't always— Interesting. You know if what you, I mean? If you go on Ancestry.com, yeah. mm-hmm. this is funny because the roots thing where you got one name, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Toby, you know, and you're yeah. like Kunta Quinte. No. As I went through and studied history, mm-hmm. it was very common for the slaves to take the full name Completely. of the slave owner. Absolutely. And the Nances, as far back as we can tell— was a slave owner who came from South Carolina mm-hmm. in 1803 and right. brought one slave with him, went to western Georgia and started a community there, which still has a place called Nanceville Cemetery. Wow. And that was all white Nances. Mm-hmm. But he had slaves in western Georgia, northern, southern Tennessee, northern Alabama, and that's where all the black Nances come from. Is, is Larry Nance uh, related to the, to the Nances? <laughs> He's, interestingly the, enough, no. Cleveland. He's from the Irish Nances. Oh, the Irish Uh, Nances. There actually is an Irish Nance. But um, that's where this whole progression of where our families come from. They use the names. If you go on like Ancestry.com, you can see the census uh, of any year from like 1800 Mm -hmm. on. They put in full names. There's not like slave one, slave 23. They all have names, Mm -hmm. first name and last names. Mm -hmm. And they took those names and they they stayed together in families. But there, you know, we have lots of family members who were just like 40 names, but 40 different names. Yeah. And some of the and sometimes you'll get conflicting or overlapping information in black Bibles from the time, too. Yes. Where you can find a lot of that information. Well, my favorite little piece of of African-American history was how I say black Bibles. I mean, Bibles, Bibles, black black people. Yeah, so not Bibles with the black Jesus in it. <laughs> they got them too. Yeah, exactly. my grandma had one. Yes, exactly. Come on. So, in one top part in the 1840s, mm-hmm. in one part of our family, there is a census that has a white man, a white wife, mm-hmm. three children, and four children. And then at age 12, they started listing that child separately. Mm-hmm. Winnie Winford. Mm-hmm. And by age 15, she was listed as mulatto. But in the original census, she was this guy's child, which hmm. means she was a child from one of the slaves uh, there. And then they started listing her as a completely different entity in, mm-hmm. in humanity because the, the census takers were like, nope, you know, she's not your child. She's a mulatto or an octoroon or whatever. Might so, have been passing. A lot of that back there. Early on, yeah. You know? So my family, you know, my grandfather's fought in World War I. Mm-hmm. My f- father, 15, ran away and joined the Navy to get into World War II at 15. Mm. But he's like you. He's super tall. And mm-hmm. then uh, Korea, Vietnam, and I've done pretty much everything since. And I have a niece uh, who was just in combat off of Yemen a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. So nonstop military service. I came in, I I grew up in Philadelphia, a Catholic kid in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And the first language I ever learned was Yiddish. Nice. And You kind of need that in the Catholic school. No, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I went to Catholic school. So, So, but the first decrypts I ever did of of a code was the Hebrew newspapers that were lying around in the neighborhood. And they became so fascinating to me. I took one to the library, and I got a a Hebrew Mm -hmm. alphabet book. And I was trying to break it out, but I learned a valuable lesson. That 
codebreakers in World War II learned, right? Everything breaks out into a foreign language. So you have to know Yiddish. Correct. Also, you need to know that Hebrew letters go from right to left, not left yes, to right. Yes, you kind of have right? to know there's, a couple of basics. Some, there's some rules. but So you did some amateur code breaking. Sure, as a kid. And yeah. that made, I was fascinated with going around the world. And, mm-hmm. you know, there were shows like Big Blue Marble and Zoom mm-hmm. and International Children's Film Festival. And it just made me curious about the rest of the world. Yeah. And that's what you want your child to be. You want mm-hmm. them to be curious about things that are not them, right? You want to get them off the... Off and, the table. And you kind of did a lot of this during kind of a transition in the world, too. Where, yeah, uh, the 70s and 80s. Yeah. 70s. Where, where the, so the 70s were, unbeknownst to most people, the Soviet Union's kind of on its way out. Yeah. During that time. But they were still so, big and bad. But they were still big and bad, you know? yeah. And so, you know, in our family, yeah, pretty much going in the Navy. I mean, I have five yeah. brothers who were in the Navy. My dad was a master chief in the Navy. I was born in a naval hospital, you know, mm-hmm. and— uh so I went into the Navy, and uh, I went to school for cryptology, for mm. code breaking. Mm-hmm. And the first thing, cryptologic linguist, though, which is what I was doing with that newspaper. So they sent me to Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California, for a year and a half to study Arabic. In fact, I'd come in for Russian, but, you know, I'll say it, but they're a little racist back then. You think? Yeah, the <laughs> Russian instructors, and they were like, you will not do well. We are not sending yeah. you. You go take Chinese. You know, and it's just like, yeah, okay. So I was like, so they held me over for three months because I was waiting for a Russian It's funny because I don't want this observation to go unrecognized, you know? Okay. So I did a joke on a Bernie Mac episode because I had the same observation where uh, this Russian guy is at Bernie's house and he's looking at the house and goes, hmm, nice house. You rent? (laughs) (laughs) And Bernie's like, no, motherfucker, I I own this house. You are are using your dealer's house. (laughs) Yes, but I I completely understand this observation. Let's just say that. Anyhow. Well, you know, they lived in a closed-loop system, and all the instructors were escapees from the former Soviet Union. And completely corrupt. Oh, well. People are used to just a corrupt way of living. In Russia and the Soviet Union. Yeah. That well, you have the only way to survive is through corruption. Right. And bribe right. everybody. Exactly. Right? So yeah. I'm um, bringing that up because that has a lot to do with what we're going to talk about. Well, I so. went into, right. but I actually studied Russian for a year. Got so it. I could speak some Russian. Uh-huh. And I actually studied Mandarin Chinese did as you, well. Did, now, did you also study like Russian history and that yes. sort of thing? Okay. Yes. Got it. Got and it. yeah, you can't read about the czars. Exactly. You know, and I was fascinated with the October Revolution, it's, the Russian Revolution. It's completely fascinating. You know, whole period. I mean, yeah. what's even more fascinating is how many people they shot. I mean, yeah. they just, they, you it blink. They just, it's, it's easier to kill you yeah. than for us to process you in any right. separate way. And, and then the world as a whole <clears> to kind of go from a... Um, a monarchy authoritarianism right. to this, to, you know. Totalitarianism. Totalitarianism. Yeah. And it's happening all around the world. Yeah. At the same time, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Right? So I went from there to, they gave me a choice. They were like, Korean or Arabic? And mm-hmm. it was funny because I lived in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood, Catholic kid. I had studied, you know, I was fascinated with the Munich Olympics. Remember the, the oh, massacre yeah. at the Munich no, Olympics? terrible. Huh? And I, it just popped in my head. I was like, why didn't you choose this the first time? Mm-hmm. You're a big Middle East guy. So I took Arabic. And what's funny about these schools is there's a very different methodology from the Russian house to the Middle East house, the okay. Mina house. And the Russian house is fail a quiz, you're out. Mm. That's it. Miss one alphabet letter, you're out. And with the Middle East one, I went there for the first two weeks, and they were trying to teach you Arabic alphabet and everything. Mm -hmm. And it was just so hard because they give you, like, 
one or two hundred words per night to study. Ooh. And the next morning, they give you a quiz. Mm. So that when you leave, you have a, like a 40, 50,000 word vocabulary. Yeah. And they test you on it all the time. It's kind of an academic immersion. Oh, it's total mm-hmm. immersion pretty Rather much. than a cultural Ac- one, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I had an Egyptian instructor who was very funny. And so I, I just, one night after a very particularly difficult quiz, I was like, listen, I want to quit. I want to drop. I want to go back and fly, you know, be a, any submarine warfare operator in a helicopter. And he goes, he g- they give you an Arabic name. So my name was Khalil. He goes, listen, Khalil, okay, you can drop. No problem. He says, no problem, your droppings. He says, but listen, tell you what, next week after the final week exam, you come back, you tell me you drop, we drop. Okay. Wow. And I'm like, yeah, okay, great. Yeah, good. I'm going to drop. And so, of course, back to work. <laughs> and you have mandatory study hall at this school. I mean, mm-hmm. it's eight hours in the classroom, one hour off for, for dinner. Then you have four hours of mandatory study hall. And then the rest of the night, you can choose to study right. all night. And so that's what you're putting in like 15, 16 hours a day in foreign language. Yeah. In the most beautiful place in the world, the top of Monterey, California, mm. above Cannery Row. And you can go hang out in Pebble Beach and Asilomar. And we used to hang out at Clint Eastwood's bar when he was mayor. Yeah, The Carmel. Boar's Breath. I met him down there in Carmel. Yeah. And, um, you know, you if you wanted to cleanse your mind, you drive down to Big Sur. So this is, Ooh. they were paying you to be there. That's nice. All right. And study some words while you're at it. So that two weeks late goes by, and then a month goes by, three months go by, and about month six, I realized, wasn't I supposed to drop? <laughs> but I was doing well. He knew you so better I than did. you did. They yeah. know how to ease you yeah. through. That's so how smart. the Middle Easterners do it. It's always a Very compliment. Smart. Yes, yes, come back after the camel has died. Yeah. We, will, <laughs> we, will, we will renegotiate, and then you're like, that camel lived for 17 right. years. So, but I loved those guys because uh-huh. they were funny. I actually passed an exam in, by cheating. And the way I cheated was you're supposed to do a verbal exam. And they're, uh-huh. they're supposed to talk to you about politics or Middle Eastern wars. And you have three instructors. Mm-hmm. I had three Egyptian instructors, and I knew I was going to be able to pass this exam because Egyptians like jokes. And uh-huh. so I was talking about, you know, the Arab League meeting in 1975 or something. And I said, but, you know, that happened in Egypt. And Egypt's a funny place, I'm saying in Arabic. Uh-huh. And they were like, what do you mean the funny place? <laughs> All three of them lean back. I go, because Egyptians like jokes. And they go, we like jokes? I go, of course you do. Egyptians are funny. And he goes, do you know any jokes? And I'm like, yeah. So now I have shifted a discussion from the Arab League uh-huh. to me telling jokes to Egyptians. Nice. Right? Very I've nice. got these guys laughing, a dirty jokes about Muammar Gaddafi and a wow. you know, big-chested woman. And these guys gave me an A for telling dirty jokes as part of my, this my is fluency pretty, class. This is pretty much how the world works. It's true. <laughs> I mean, I'm not quite sure if it was cheating or I just yes, showed a no. better level of fluency. You negotiated something. <laughs> you negotiated something. So what did you what did you do in intelligence? Um, well, I'm a cryptologist, so I can, uh, which is the highest form of of okay. intelligence collection. It's very sensitive, so I can only. Right. I can't tell you anything that I've done, but I can give you some examples. All okay, right? good. Um, so in World War II— I can still classify the things that you did. Sure. Yes, of course, they're very classified. Yeah. Because none of that stuff has changed at all. Right. Okay. But in World War II, if you watch the bat- the movie of the Battle of Midway, 
sure. you know that we broke Japanese codes. Correct. But the people who broke the Japanese codes were fluent Japanese linguists. Yes. And that's what cryptologic linguistics is, where right. you have to work that. But to get those codes, you actually have to put on headphones and intercept their communications. Right, like right? at Bletch- Bletchley Park. At Bletchley Park, which yeah. I'm, a, I'm a member of the Bletchley Park Society. Love, I love all of that I stuff. I hang out. Oh, you do? Love. I can't you, get enough of that. We need to bring you to the International Spy Museum. I would love which to. Which I'm on the board, and the National Cryptologic Museum. I can't get enough of that kind of stuff. All right, my buddy just you know, became the, the new director of the National The whole Breaking Museum. the German code is still an unending fascinating story. And, it, and of, the thing is, so much stuff yeah. hinged on their breaking those codes. It's fascinating. Like, and the fact that people, st- like, they still had to let things happen. Yes. So you couldn't the, let them know that you knew the code. Like, that's the so bombing fascinating. bombing of Birmingham, yes. for example. So the, Churchill knew that there was going to be this full court push. Uh, and they thought they had burned London to the ground. Uh, and Birmingham was their... Um, was their uh, their center of 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 uh, industry, mm-hmm. and the Germans so had a huge, massive wall of airplanes, hundreds of airplanes, and mm-hmm. Churchill. They had broke the codes at Bletchley Park, and was it the Enigma? Was that the, the Enigma machine? machine was right. the German code breaking machine? That was the machine, and right. the they had captured one in a very very daring. Recovery, which actually lost the lives of three sailors. That was in a submarine, right? Right. It was in a right. submarine off of uh, off of Eastern Mediterranean, mm-hmm. and these three sailors went aboard, got the machine yeah. as they were passing it up. The sub sank and killed all three mm. of them. Wow. But it, they had the only machine and the code books in their hand. Yeah. And then they they broke all that out. And I've actually seen the memorial to these three sailors at Bletchley Park. Sure. So anyway, that is what. Cryptologists and cryptological your linguists do. Is, your, your primary job is to intercept codes. Was that a fair well, thing to say? Intercept to, a bunch of stuff. A bunch of stuff. Okay. It could be clear voice. It could be codes. Okay. But you know that's how it was done in the oldie days. All I can say is the modern days, it's it's done the same. And so I'm a Middle Eastern guy. I do you know Middle East, North Africa, wherever. Arabic or Arabic dialects mm-hmm. are done. And then of course when Al Qaeda got into their game. Uh, you know, even as an intelligence subcontractor, when I left the military, I went back and did sort of the same job for way better money in well, much more dangerous environment. Let me ask you this. This is so fascinating. Like this podcast becomes about something else. This is what happens sometimes. <laughs> How much does technology and the way that information is transferred how harder does that make cryptology? Oh, my God. we world's harder. Like, in and, my mind, like, like, it's one thing, like, if someone texts someone and you can intercept a text. But what if someone's texting through words with friends? You know? Right, like, right. You know what I mean? I mean, that, that's a very crude example. It's harder. <laughs> and it, it really started with the, the advent of the modern cell phone. You know, with uh-huh. the ones that were brick size. They were like right. old World War II radios. Yes. You know? The problem is you went from a a single point of intercept where mm-hmm. you could actually look at me getting into it. Uh, See, you could you go. actually go to a node of a telephone exchange like mm-hmm. it was done in the 60s. Right. And you could actually literally tap a single line. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you were given information about location. Right. And, and, yeah, because it's all there. Intent, which which, which trunk line, you, which yes. home. Right. Right. And you could actually get the, you know, the G-men would be outside your door. Yeah. Whereas suddenly, <laughs> right, Mr. King, no march today. Yeah, but suddenly, <laughs> three hundred and twenty million mm-hmm. individual points of communication right. that are going through GSM systems and cellular systems—that's crazy. Which now it shifts your targeteering, which means going after your target, mm-hmm. to where you have to know 
who you're going for. And mm-hmm. this is why the Snowdens and all these, the Greenwalds and all these guys who I get into it with are all wrong. We don't have time at the National Security Agency to bother with you and your I, girlfriend's pictures. I couldn't agree more. Okay, we're mm. busy killing real people who deserve to be destroyed, mm-hmm. all right? People who have, have earned the right to have the Sauron eye of the National Security Agency on them. And like the Sauron eye, right, whatever it beholds is going to, you know, be burned to a crisp. Woo. So, you know, <laughs> your Instagram is not on their radar mm. because that takes humans. Everything eventually comes down to a human. Even a machine that's translating, Mm -hmm. right, has to be double-checked. And so, you know, if we're out blasting members of ISIS, okay, the guys who are going to get you are not the National Security Agency if you're here in the United States. I always have this saying when I teach law enforcement, if you have someone who thinks they're talking to ISIS, they're talking to the FBI, Mm. right? Because your family member would have informed on you or you would have been on an ISIS website and you would Mm -hmm. have said, here's my real address. Mm. Because a lot of these idiots do that. Uh, We have a lot of mentally ill people Mm -hmm. who say that they're going to join ISIS or Al-Qaeda. And the FBI will go to your front door and they will give you an opportunity not to do it. They'll go, hey, yeah, we noticed you were out there on ISIS's Twitter page and, you know, you were saying, I love it. How do I jihad? You know, or we actually have this phrase. How do I j- jihad do in place? I jihad? We jihad in place, right? Oh you know, you home, homeschool jihad. So that's not the National Security the Agency. Thank you very much. You could have jihad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I have no idea stealing that. that. Mm-hmm. So um, we don't do that stuff. Mm. We are not inherently evil. The average person at the National Security Agency, you would love, and they do protect you, okay. and they do save people's lives every day. When you day. say we're not inherently evil, mm-hmm. so that's something I wanted to ask about, too, because that, to me, describes what is being called the deep state. Right. Right? Well, so is the little old lady who sends you your welfare check. Right. Or your, it's your the, social it's, security It's the check. people who are the institutional framework of the country that have worked places for years and years and years yeah. and they're there doing their job the national dmv right right <laughs> yeah correct right which that, is now being tacked as yeah, as a deep state yes as a partisan arm that actually has intention and here's the kicker for a coup d'etat or the something the person like who that. is attacking the deep state is literally the physical embodiment of the man yes right that character that everybody thought was shadowy that's and right. everything who was doing evil and making decisions against your life that's donald trump yeah. he is the man only he's the stupid version okay so of let's the man. let's let's transfer to that because okay. i want to make sure we talk about your book the sure. plot to betray america so is the basic thesis of this book maybe it's twofold and correct me if i'm wrong mm-hmm. is one thesis that there actually is I don't know if coup d'etat is the right word, but but there actually is a thoughtful intent to harm America by outside forces. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? And there is a witting or unwitting participant in that intent, and that man's name is Donald Trump. Well, that's true. Both are true. I'm trying to be there fair in, actually, in the description of, of There is. Of if, Trump. If, if you read all three books, you'll get the full yes. picture. There is a campaign, mm-hmm. a strategic policy that is being executed mm-hmm. by a foreign power. Okay. Everything you see that happens with Russia, let me tell you, 
right now. And this is why I was mm-hmm. the first person in U.S. media to identify this whole thing as a Russian intelligence operation. Mm-hmm. And I was vilified for the first two or three months. Right. You know, until Barack Obama came out and said it on television, mm-hmm. right? There is a strategy, and Vladimir Putin is using this strategy of make Russia great again by destroying the United States. Okay, so that's what what were your signposts for that? Without, you know, you don't have to give away no, no, your I, secrets, but what were clear signposts that there's something nefarious going on outside of just normal politicking that happens inside the United States? Well, the signposts were very clear. Okay. Um, Quick aside, I wrote a book about three years ago called Hacking ISIS, Mm -hmm. and it was a deep dive analysis of all of their social warfare, their social media, Mm -hmm. their information warfare, their attempted hacks, and things like that. But while researching that And they were trying to be also a low-key cable access program at the same time. Yeah, of course. Of course. And you know what? They were actually very successful. Yeah, they were very much interested in media is what I'm saying. Yeah, Yeah. they knew media. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, that's why they're— I said they were. I mean, I don't know where ISIS is. Oh, it's past tense. Okay. All of their media heads, they all, as we say in our business, ate a hellfire, right? They ate a missile. These people were as valuable as the top terrorist planners. Their propaganda had bought in tens of thousands of people worldwide to come and join an international Mm -hmm. terrorist group and to start executing people. So, of course, media centers, as soon as we found them, it was like, boom, right? We would Mm -hmm. blast the ever-living hell out of them. Mm. But more importantly, it was the media figures who were actually coordinating these people and doing that. We would track them down and put a missile right through the roof of their car and and vaporize them because propaganda is a weapon system. Mm -hmm. And in this current information sphere we operate in, it's what I said about the Russians in 2016. They didn't hack just the DNC. Mm -hmm. They hacked the mindset of one third of the American public. Okay, how did they do that? Oh, well, first off, uh, the Russians are— You said one third. That's a big number. It's a big number because the Russians aren't stupid because unlike our president— Their leader is a former KGB officer who came in as a lifetime careerist. He wanted to stay for the rest of his life. When he was 13, he went to a KGB open house Mm -hmm. and asked them, how does he become a KGB officer? And they said, go to university, then go to law school, then come join us. That's exactly what he did. Mm -hmm. Then he went to East Germany, to Dresden, Germany, to learn how to manipulate and turn Westerners into spies. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of Westerners had business in East Germany or they had girlfriends. And he would, you know, the girlfriend would be recruited or intimidated, they would bring in their boyfriend who might be a married West German businessman, right? And then they would say, hey, hi, we're the KGB, and here's how it's going to go. You're going to be our spy, and you're going to do it, or one of two things is going to happen to you. We're going to turn you into them, or we're just going to keep you here. Mm. And now you have options. This is what Putin did as a baby spy. He manipulated human beings. He was a Mm -hmm. human intelligence officer. His job was to collect souls, so to speak, and then turn them into traitors. So mid-career, boom, the wall falls. He is left out. He has to go back to Russia. And what he does, he goes back to St. Petersburg, where he's from. And with he he was friends with the mayor of St. Petersburg. Mm -hmm. And at that point, kleptocracy was reigning. I was going to say. Their job was to steal everything and sell everything. He became the biggest kleptocrat. Yeah, kleptocrat. (laughs) Well, it was simple as this. The KGB had resources. You know, they didn't go away. Right. Uh, They just changed the letters to FSB. They had resources that existed that Putin had access to. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, 
printing presses. Right. So every building in the city of St. Petersburg, literally every building, every firehouse, every doghouse, every gas station, every fire hydrant, every street was now privatized. Yeah. And the mayor of St. Petersburg was printing up ownership documents, mm-hmm. deeds, and he would sell a deed to an apartment building for a million dollars, right? Now, the only people who could really afford it initially were the Russian mafia, right? Right, And the mafia is a professional criminal class, not like our shiftless mafia, our, mm. our shiftless people here. <laughs> These guys are in it for life. They're fully tattooed all over their body. Wow. They never leave it once they're in. And so Putin realized all these guys were in there. They were buying up stuff. They were getting the fake paper. They were going to the West and selling off airports, Mm -hmm. for example. And the mayor of St. Petersburg needed this reined in. So Putin went and got his ex-KGB buddies and went to the mafia and said, you know, we're the KGB. We're the one group of guys who could really rock your world. We can mess you up. But here's what we're going to do. You will comply with us. You will get a solid 20%. Right, which might be more than you deserve or less than you deserve, but that's what you're getting. You're going to get it forever, right? You'll be working with us and for us, and we're going to sell this city. And that's exactly what they did. And they earned tens of billions of right. dollars selling, you know, you know, shares in things that didn't exist the day before. Mm-hmm. So Putin was also a loyalist. So when the mayor came up under a corruption probe, he stuck with that guy. Boris Yeltsin, the president of Russia, saw this, mm-hmm. and he was like, that guy brought the St. Petersburg Mafia under control using the KGB? Well, let me introduce my new director of intelligence, mm. right? The new director of the FSB, Vladimir Putin. His first job was to get Boris Yeltsin out of a corruption investigation. A very a guy who was trying to be legitimately democratic, was out there investigating Russia, uh, Yeltsin for corruption, for stealing money, mm-hmm. and Putin— Wakes up one day and he says, oh, I'll solve this problem for you. A videotape of that prosecutor in bed with two prostitutes surfaces on Russian national TV. And he goes, this man must resign. And Vladimir Putin comes out and says, the KGB or or the F, I'm sorry, (laughs) same thing. The FSB (laughs) has certified that this is a legitimate, real videotape of the prosecutor in general being, you know, very naughty with prostitutes. And boom, guy resigns. Boris Yeltsin makes Putin the prime minister of Russia, which is the step, it's vice president. Right. And Yeltsin gets off. They put in a fake prosecutor. They clear him of everything. Yeltsin, his daughter, who is taking money, gets to retire, move off. Putin becomes president. Wow. Through powerful use of blackmail information, which he used the KGB slash FSB as his hammer for anybody. And at the same time, he's kind of become the de facto CEO of all this corporate money. And that's because right? all of that money in Russia, which was now stolen, right. billions and billions yes. of dollars. He's attached to all that. What he did yes. was he went to every oligarch in that country. Yes. And he said, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to assign a KGB, ex-KGB or ex-FSB officer to your staff. And they will tell you exactly what I want done. And the people who opposed him, like Viktor Kordakovsky, owned huge mm-hmm. media empire, which is like, no, this is the new Russia. I'm not doing that. Putin, as president, said, uh, he is corrupt. We are seizing all of his assets and we are going to exile him. He was in London at the time. Mm-hmm. And then he said, we are selling all of his assets from his media world 
to other people, other oligarchs, right? Suddenly his TV channel, which is hard-hitting, looking for corruption, you know, criticized Putin about the sinking of the submarine Kursk, is now playing only balalaika dancing in variety shows and disco shows and mm-hmm. TV movies. And he bought all of the media in Russia under his control in one year. And you make an assertion in this book, and I'm, once again, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. it seems like you're saying that even as far back as the late 80s or maybe early 90s, that Trump was maybe being, um, what would be the word? Watched. Yes. Well, is that groomed, groomed could be a word. Or maybe well, in fact, there's a lot put of, into a category of possible um, asset. assets. There right. you go. Mm-hmm. What is documentable fact mm-hmm. is that from 1977 to 1987, he was under his communications between him, his wife, and his father-in-laws, and the, you know Ivana Trump's family. Mm-hmm. He was under surveillance by Czech intelligence, the Czechoslovak Republic. It's not Trump was. Trump was. Okay. His wife Ivana was a Czech citizen. That was behind the Iron Curtain. Mm-hmm. The Czech intelligence agency, the STB, was the Czech subordinate agency to the KGB in Moscow. Okay. So they were the secret police. Mm-hmm. Their job, when Ivana married Donald Trump, she would call home. She would send letters home. All of those communications were intercepted. All of the mail was opened. And they went to the family and said, well, one of you is going to be an informant. We want hmm. to know everything about this guy. Mm-hmm. And you were going to tell us or or else. The informant was, for 10 years, her father, Milos. And he, you know, they intimidate. They, they, they're, it's, they're evil commies, right? And so he gave, dutifully gave reports. And his net worth, Donald Trump's net worth in the mid-80s, was reported through Ivana as real, which was much different than what Donald Trump was telling the rest of the world, Uh that he was worth, you know, like a billion dollars. In fact, he was worth like a hundred million dollars at that time. Mm -hmm. And Ivana was calling her father and saying, well, he also is considered running for president in 1988. Mm -hmm. Well, here's something no one in the United States knew, but the KGB knew. And so- Actually, it's funny. Oprah asked him about that in about 1988 at that time. He was on the Oprah Winfrey show back in the day. And I think she actually brought that up. Because it's funny when you look back and you see him first talking about right, right. Uh, the presidency. Right. and But Mm-mm. it came through phone calls of the wife talking to them. So now they are ahead of Donald Trump. They're ahead of U.S. politics. They're ahead of the media, which means they can now start putting people and resources around him so that at some point he's going to triple wire. In 1987, it's hard st- for me to, to like to say. No, but he doesn't know it. No, I know because yet. because of everything that you know, it's hard for me to go. Do you really think it's like actually, Larry? I don't think I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Well, a lot of journalists have written about this, uh-huh. uh, and check and tell a check twenty four television has. All of the files do you, in their possession where they go, you know, October 12th, 1978. Right. But do you think Donald Trump was being groomed as a Manchurian candidate? No. no okay, good. Not at all. Because I, um, I don't, there's no way someone would bet on Donald Trump one day becoming president. No. There's no way you could not, bet on that. Not, Although arguably he was way more likable in 1988. Then he was in 2000. Well, I mean, he was still mm-hmm. the character of Biff in Back to the Future. Yeah, you right? know, <laughs> so that's all you really need to know about Donald Trump. He's but been, he kind of embodied the 80s ethos, right? You right, know, of, of wild and yeah, free greed is good and all that kind of stuff. And right, right, so right, right, right. by 87, Trump 
somehow in his head decides he wants to go to the Soviet Union to try to build a Trump Tower. And this now, is because— Now, 87, yeah, we're still dealing with the Soviet still Union. Still dealing with the right? Soviet Union for a couple of years. Okay. He was, so, nego- he was asking uh, the Bush administration to make him a nuclear weapons negotiator. Mm-hmm. On the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaties, the SALT Missile Treaties, which would reduce atomic bombs. And somehow he thought he should be a bigger player in the world. It's funny because he 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 used to talk about this later, too. He took a full-page ad out in the New York Times saying, make me the negotiator. Right. Right? And, of course, everyone laughed. But someone, someone put into his head that he should go to the Soviet Union. Yeah. We don't know how he got that thought. Even he has he wrote about all this, by the way, in Art of the Deal. Or you mean someone else? This whole story (laughs) of how he went to Moscow. Right. Went there, said he wanted to build buildings. Russia facilitated it. Let me rephrase that. The Soviet Communist KGB in tourist directorate facilitated his entire visit. He was under KGB control the entire time. His hotels were KGB. Everything was monitored. Everybody knows that when you go to that cut, when you went to the Iron Mm -hmm. Curtain, everything is monitored. So he comes back. He's talking about building Trump Tower 1.0 in Moscow. Then the Soviet Union collapses. So that business deal fizzles. Fast forward to all those Russians that were stealing money, Mm -hmm. all right, and liquidating apartment complexes and dog kennels and all that stuff. That money had to go somewhere. So they started buying real estate in Mm -hmm. the mid-1990s all over the world. Mm -hmm. I was just in the German city of Baden-Baden, which is like Mm -hmm. a bath. It's been a bath center since the Roman times. Mm -hmm. And in the 19th century, the czars lived there. That was like their playground. They Mm -hmm. would take carriages from Russia to Western Germany Mm -hmm. to go to the baths of Baden-Baden and play at the casinos. Great name for a city. Yeah. So when the communists came, Mm -hmm. all of their resources, all of their assets in Baden-Baden went away, Mm -hmm. right? When the Soviet Union came out, collapsed, and all of that illicit money came, the first thing that happened is Russians went to Baden-Baden and, like, bought every apartment in the city. Right? Oligarch money. Because you need to launder that dirty, dirty money. Right. And what you have to do is turn it into a tangible asset, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, a multi-million dollar apartment building or a playground or a tennis center. And then when you sell it in the future as it accrues and appreciates, you get clean money from real estate. All that money was coming into the United States in the tens of billions of dollars. I learned all of this uh, by watching Breaking Bad, by the way. Yeah, well, you're right. <laughs> Buy a car wash. Right. Was it a car wash? You yes, bought? it was. You know, that's exactly what you do. And remember how much money he had in oh, the middle crazy. of that garage? Yeah, it was Didn't fantastic. MIT calculate that it was like $37 million? Oh, really? Just yeah. by you know, doing right. the math Just on the size the of the stack. I love that nerds take the time to do <laughs> yeah, that. It's like, he's got $37 million bucks right there. He could buy a car washes. Okay. So this is how this all came about. But this is where Donald Trump comes on all right. the evil villain's radar. And that's where I, my chapter, second chapter, is called Supervillain with a Leash. Right. Because you always need an evil villain. And Vladimir Putin is a okay. Bond villain evil guy. So... And it's funny because you mentioned Smirsh in here too, which I associate with Smirsh with, with uh, James Bond. Right? I know with James Bond, it's real so organization. That's a re- that was a real Smirsh in World was War II was yes. a directorate under Russian intelligence. Okay, who went to the battlefront, and what they were looking for was Russians or captives who were sent back, who were being sent back as spies right. into their lines. 
and Smirsh would capture them and instantly execute them. Because this this feels like a Smirsh operation. <laughs> I, I, I don't joke about that, yes. but in James Bond and Russia with Love, uh-huh. Smirsh is yes. the operation because that, that woman code breaker yeah. defects yes. and falls in she love had with a lector. James. Right? That's what it was, the story of the lector. The le- yeah. That's right. And then I'll do my and, James Bond when he realizes I guess the boys at, uh, at the KGB don't da da da. And then he goes, KGB. He goes, of course, smash. Smash. <laughs> smash. When course. Putin starts massacring, starts killing off journalists mm-hmm. and enemies, yes. he also right. started a campaign because he, yes. he called the That's KGB I mean. and the FSB the Knights of the New Russia. Right. And he started assassinating ex-spies who had moved to the West. Right. Skripal in England. He tried to yes. assassinate him. That whole uh, uh, poison thing. It, right. it, it, Litvenko, Litvenko, right. all these guys using not just poisons, Ugh. the most exotic yes. poisons on this planet. Ugh. Poisons are a specialty of the KGB. Yes. And in fact, they were a specialty of the czar era. Wow. They wouldn't, and they the poison that they chose would send the message. Like, for example, yes. he goes after Litvenko, with polonium. Wow. Polonium is a nuclear isotope. That's crazy. We can actually tell you which reactor in this world wow. created it. The one that it came like it's from. So, it's, it's so traceable, in yeah. other words, right? And yes. it's, it, they want yes. you to know. Wow. It was because the guy was really good looking. Yes. Then, I remember his and whole body just deteriorated. It deteriorated. It fell yes, apart. It, fell it was apart. like a leper. Like a Mr. Potato Head. Right. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, Putin was— Not to make fun of him. It was horrible. Because people used to say how good-looking he was. Handsome spy from Russia. And Putin took that stuff personally. That polonium came from a reactor in Russia that produced plutonium for atomic bombs. So let me guess. Unless you got an atomic bomb reactor in your basement— and that is mimicking that one there, using uranium from that, or polonium, plutonium from that reactor. That is the only place on planet Earth that it can come but from. But Malcolm, these And they took it, and they were like, hey, let's use this nuclear isotope on this But guy. they're not fucking around. They are evil. Yeah. <laughs> James, James Bond, supervillain wow. evil, because now he's got money and the mega yacht. So wow. these guys are running Russia the way they mm. that— Bond, that hand Stavro Blofeld. Does, right? does, let me ask you a question. I'm sure he's got a golden gun somewhere. Yes, exactly. <laughs> just, I have to ask you about Trump directly because mm. I'm of a couple of minds about him. Do you think, see, I, I don't put him on top in terms of his intelligence, savviness in a certain arena. Mm. I give him credit for being a um, gutter businessman. I'll say gutter because I think he he operates out of the gutter to do his business, and he's very visceral in the way that he operates. But I don't give him credit for this chess level oh, of thing no. that's going on. <laughs> there I, is no chess going right. on in the Donald Trump world. So I mean, I'm correct about that, right? You, so, you are absolutely correct about do that. Do you think he has any of this type of awareness, or does he have awareness and looks the other way because he wants something else? Do you think he's in a cooperation? What What is your opinion of that? 
I think that, and I've, I've said this many times, Donald Trump started off as a, as a useful idiot right? Uh, back in the 80s. And, the, under and, the, the KGB. and let's define useful a idiot. A useful idiot is a person who doesn't know that right. their actions are actually benefiting another power. Right. They're, they're just so clumsy and dumb that and, and it Stalin used to say that about Westerners. Yes, useful and it doesn't, useful idiot doesn't necessarily have to be guided. Right. They can just be a useful idiot. Right, absolutely. Right. Okay, good. Uh, then next comes an unwitting asset. Okay, this now is where an unwitting he, asset, let's define It means that. he knows he is being, he is, someone is working in his interest and he doesn't know specifically who, okay. but he doesn't specifically care. So the unwitting asset like, actually benefits. Like all these right. apartments being bought by Russians. Got it. He doesn't know that it, you know, it, it could be Russian mafia. I don't know. I don't care. Right. Right? Just keep buying apartments and money falls into my pocket. Okay. A winning asset, on the other hand, yes. knows mm-hmm. that someone is conducting activities to benefit him. This is he transactional. He accepts that, right. Well, right. no, not yet. Not necessarily. He okay. accepts that activity, but he, 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 he benefits from it, but he doesn't actually sign a contract or anything, right? It's so this is what the Mueller report discovered. That's what discovered. I mean. His benefit is transactional. Right. That's what I mean. This is what the Mueller report discovered. The okay. Mueller report discovered that— Donald Trump was aware that Russia was doing activities, mm-hmm. knew he would benefit from Russian activities, worked so that those benefits would work in his interest, and did not care otherwise. Because the next step is an agent, mm-hmm. right? Where you have a contract with them, right. and they give you tasks and right. activities that you will fulfill, or they will blackmail or shoot you or do something along that line. I have never, ever said Donald Trump was an agent. I have said he is a winning asset. Or, so you have them up to witting asset. Yes. Not even unwitting asset. And the, asset. De- the first words of, mm-hmm. of, that, of that book was, you know, when uh, Donald Trump said, Russia, if you're listening, yeah. you know, if you release 30,000 Hillary Clinton emails, our media will greatly reward that, you. That's not useful idiot. That's witting asset. That's a witting asset. He knew Russia would, would mm-hmm. do it. He knew Russia would do it. And again, the Mueller report validated that. They said, hey, this guy was aware he knew that it was coming because we know all about the WikiLeaks now. And now, as of, you know, of just recently, we find that Roger Stone had been lying for him and knew Surprise. that he was aware mm-hmm. of the entire WikiLeaks campaign and that everything Stone said to Mueller was a lie. Everything uh, of, Trump said to Mueller was a lie. Of course he knew about that at that was time. Was a lie. So Absolutely. that's where we are. The United States is, is being led around by a guy who is apparently in some way, shape, or form indebted. To Russia. That's what it feels like. Um, oh yeah. Well, when he was, why he doesn't insult him. Yeah. Well, especially when he was at that conference. I forgot where it was. It was a year and a half ago or so. Whatever. But anyhow, um, we're <laughs> running long on time. I know, and I gotta. And I know you have to go. But let me just wrap up. And thanks so much, man. We have to talk again about this because there's so much more. What is our best hope going forward with this? Is it to just try to? put someone else in office at this point? Will we be facing the same type of thing? Is there something set up right now that's going to make this almost impossible? You know, your best (laughs) guess on that, and then we'll wrap up. Um, We eventually will face, I think, a smarter, savvier Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. right? The guy who will come off, who will be, who will incorporate all the errors of Donald Trump and will nullify them through slickness and smoothness, and he will be a polished uh, mm-hmm. Republican. And he will appeal with that same race hatred that Donald Trump does, only without being a moron, right? And you won't be able to call him a moron, but this guy will have thought through what he's going to do. 
Donald mm-hmm. Trump is what I call a constitutional autocracy, autocrat. Mm-hmm. He will use the Constitution and the Bill of Rights as a fig leaf, and they will have the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. I think for, you give him a lot of credit for saying he'll use the Constitution. For, for his 40%. <laughs> mm-hmm. But the other 60% is going to get screwed. And so he want, and there was a woman at, at a Trump rally earlier this year who said, I didn't think I would ever want a dictator, but if there has to be one, it should know, be Donald Trump. I know. He's, he's softening. This that, is uh, what they're moving to. I know. They don't believe in the American experiment. They but, believe in their version of what they think America should be for them, okay. Trump voters, which is mean, spiteful, hateful, and they get to own the flag and no other person can be that. And they also live in a weird alternate reality where liberals are violent and armed and dangerous and setting fire to cities. There are commercials that are being run by a super PAC for the last year all over the United States. I've seen them in every city I go to, and it is weird, man. Yeah, it's the left hates America uh, trope. We all wear black hoodies. Same for a long time. Last question. What about the Democrats? I don't think the Russians are stupid, as you say. I don't think they would just put all their eggs in one political basket wouldn't you do you think that i mean i'm just prognosticating you know they would also have their eyes on the other side i mean why no the russians are serious autocrats and they need the conservatives they've created because it's the most likely to to be in line or to yeah ideologically in line they have created conservative political parties all around europe they are poised to mm-hmm. knock liberal democracy down. Just today, Vladimir Putin said, liberalism is obsolete. Mm. Well, liberalism is decency, respect, kindness, working for a you know, progressive future and so that everybody can benefit through living in a free society. Of course, autocrats don't believe in that. Right, That's democracy. Yeah. And he is trying to destroy democracy. Now, what can we do, mm-hmm. right? Now, the place you have to be concerned about in the 2020 election is we have to blow out the margins so wide that even <laughs> cheating, even cheating will not affect the results. Because here, I don't, I don't I'm, disagree with that. I'm not worried about Russia in this election. Yes. You know I, who I'm worried about? Yeah, Pennsylvania. North Korea. Pennsylvania. Uh, Imagine North Korea using their hackers that hack Sony right. and all these places, hacking in the benefit of Democrats and pumping the electoral rolls up in a very obvious, clumsy hack mm. so that Donald Trump can say, the Democrats cheated with North Korea and we're going to nullify this election. <sighs> Scary futures. <laughs> me, with Malcolm crying over here. Well, okay, we're not going to open that door right now. Let's hope All that right. doesn't. Malcolm, thank you so much. The Plot to Betray America. You guys, the book is like this conversation. There's so much stuff in here. Yeah, and there's so many rabbit holes that you create in this book that you could just go down each one. You know? They all lead to the impeachment, by the way. Yeah. So anyhow, please come back again so we can continue this conversation. Well, maybe uh, right before the election or something like that. I'd love to get your opinion on what's going on. Malcolm Nance, The Plot to Betray America. Thanks again, Malcolm. It's my pleasure, Pete.